Welcome back to Case Studies. I'm here with my friend Casey Adams. And as a as an intro, like we we work with phenomenal operators. We work with really, really good operators. I don't know anybody like Casey. Like <laughs> like the Casey has like some abilities that are just so unique. Um specifically on a couple of things that you you'll find founders that are really excellent founders. You know, they, they, they're that entrepreneur spirit. They can build a company and kind of create it. And then you've got kind of the other side of it, which is the investment mindset and kind of, you know, I can identify opportunities and you have like this really unique balance of being really good at both, really good on the analytical kind of looking at it and making decisions, Mm. but then really good on building stuff. And we, we were kind of had a front row seat on the, you know, visible supply chain and watched you, you know, kind of take that thing from one level to, you know, a world-class company. Anyway, so just to kick it off, just, you know, super excited to be here with you and really admire just what you've done and also what you do. And so excited to dive in and go kind of hear the story. Right. Because I haven't, I haven't heard it. Like, I don't know, like the where the origins come from. I just see the results. I just see the up and to the right and everything, you know, beautiful family, all the success, you know, is it always like that? Like, was it, was it always easy? Cause you make it look easy. <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like I'm, I have these surges of um, unbelievably good luck and like they just go for extended periods of time. And I, I, I feel really lucky and so real ta- blessed. Talk to me about so. definition of luck because I actually love this topic. Yeah. So give me your definition of luck. So, what does so luck consist of? To me, luck is when you like bad luck is when you're doing the right things and bad things happen, and good luck is when you're doing the right things and good things happen. So, so when your outcome is misaligned, yeah, with your input, right? Yeah. So, so if someone has good luck; they're doing the wrong things, and good things happen, or they're doing. Sometimes, you know, you're doing the right things and good things happen. Yeah. So I, I'm a firm believer that, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a big statistical model, how well things go. Yeah. And, uh, I, I've had some really good runs of luck. Like when I met my wife, that was, that was the start of an unbelievably good run of luck. Yeah. Um, when I, when I left private practice and went in house at visible, there was an incredible run of luck. Um, and there, there were things I did good and there was stuff that, that I was good at, but, uh, the luck in many ways outstrips my input. My, my experience though, is that successful people succeed consistently over time. Like you'll see, you know, a coach that's a championship coach kind of right. goes to a new program and succeeds and then goes to a no pro. And, you know, I see that in your career where, you know, part of that could be attributed to luck, but there's also part of it that's like, there's operating principles. Yeah. And, and doing the right by. thing increases yep. your chance. Yeah. Right. Like there's no doubt about it, but I, I feel like I've, I've had a lot of really cool tailwinds and I just was willing to capitalize on them or I was, I was in the right place and I was working really hard and, and then, you know, got a great outcome that yeah. went far beyond the amount of work I put in. Maybe go back to the beginning though. Where, where did it all start? So you're from the East coast. I grew up, uh, in New Jersey. Yep. My, my family was a casino family. So I was in, in Vegas until I was 11. So talk to me about that. What does a casino family mean? Um, my dad worked in the casinos and, and when, uh, the casinos started opening in New Jersey, uh, so kind of been, all things gaming, you yeah. know, the, 
the whole process, kind of the the gambling industry. There, the, that's a very insular industry. Yeah. And and if you think back to the 70s and, and, and the 60s in the U.S., <clears throat> the places you could gamble in the United States very were few. very few. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? They hadn't gone to the Indian reservations yep. yet. They hadn't gone to the riverboat gambling yet. They hadn't gone to it was the kind offshore of Vegas gambling. was it kind was, of the It was spot. Nevada. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Vegas and Reno. And uh, my mom's family's from Nevada. So after they got married, um, my my dad was working in a copper mine and and, and my mom uh, and he were living in, in Nevada and her older brother who had gotten into the casino industry or the gaming industry, as they call it. Uh, he was like, hey, come down to Vegas. Uh, they need good people who can do stuff. Come down to Vegas and work. So my dad got into the gaming space shortly after he had left college. And um, like I said, very insular community, very small community, uh, surprisingly high uh, level of Nevada natives in it, especially early on at that yeah, time. Yeah. Um, and, and so he, he came up in that space and we moved to New Jersey, uh, after they opened the casinos there, yeah. like Atlantic city Island, uh, was allowed to have gaming. And, and that was kind of the first on the East coast. Yeah. And, um, cause now you have it a lot of places now you it's got all in Massachusetts, kind of everybody is all creating right. space to go have but, that. But as. at the time it was, Hey, here's the expansion. So yeah. all of these casino companies that had grown up in Nevada, um, they were sending their experts out to Jersey to to open casinos yeah, to probably, start operating. They, 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 where you get talent from, yeah. yeah. And and so we we were part of that. My dad had started opening uh, casinos in South Jersey uh, early on, late seventies, early eighties, uh, and we moved out to uh, Jersey in um, very early eighty five. Yeah, uh, with the Showboat, <clears throat> which it, which was a. Uh, uh, a casino organization there in, in Vegas. Um, and they were opening a casino in Jersey. So we moved out there with that. Um, and, and my dad opened a few more casinos there and then we didn't move when he went other places to open casinos. You, you, so le you left that as home base. And we stayed there. Yeah. It was Jersey all, yeah, it was Jersey all the way, you know, growing up, you grow up all the way before you kind of came out. Yeah. So that's, that's where I stayed until I came to BYU for college. And I uh, came to BYU for college on an academic scholarship. Talk to me about growing up in the gaming industry. You had <laughs> okay. some fun stories. You had some fun gambling stories <laughs> about like the way that you thought about risk. Because this is at a young age. You yeah. know what I mean? And yep. I, I, yeah, some of this stuff's intuitive. Some of this stuff is just like, you know, some of it you're born with it. And I, I was interested to see how you thought about risk and how you thought yeah. about. Well, I'll, yeah. I'll tell you a fun story. So when I was. I couldn't have been more than 14 or 15. And my dad was in gaming. My uncle was in gaming. And I can't remember what the holiday was, but my uncle and his family were over at our house. And um, this is my uncle Shannon, my mom's oldest brother. Yeah. And my uncle Shannon, it was pretty clear he knew everything, at least to me at that age. Right. He just, he seemed, just had all the, he answers. just seemed to know everything. He was yeah. like chairman of the board of a gaming organization. He was personal friends with Steve Wynn. Wow. He had been an attorney. Uh, he had, he had helped start, um, he would go on to help start the, the UNLV law school. Right. He wrote the seminal text. He's sharp as a tech. Just as smart yeah. as anyone. Right. Yeah. And it was obvious even as, as a kid that he was super smart. Yeah. So I, I had, you know, my, my five minutes with my uncle Shannon. And I said, Hey, which casino game? is is the best one you know when i'm old enough to gamble which one's the best one that i'm gonna win all all my money at and and i i remember him just like laughing 
which in retrospect, it was because it's a stupid kid question. And he says, you know, Casey, they have those big buildings because you can't win at the games. He's like, they're just, they're games of math and the math says you lose. And that's how they all work. And even if you think you're winning, that just is to get you to stay around longer because the math says you lose. Yeah. And he's like, if you want to make it so the math is close, he gave me some suggestions. You yeah. Know, you could play some blackjack. The math's okay. The pass bar. He, he gave me some suggestions of where it was only a little bad. But kind of said like, <laughs> he's like, don't, this is a loser's don't game. do that. Yeah. yeah. Don't, don't, don't play those games. That's, that's a great me, like, way. I'm, I love like a gambling night you know, in Vegas, but I know I'm losing the money. Yeah. You know, if, if yeah. I win, that was, that was a bonus, but it's like, we're going to go have some fun with friends, play some games. And that's my entertainment. And, and it's entertainment. Yeah. Right. And, and I, I think that that's a good way to think about it. I, I think that there are a lot of people who think that there's some system. Yeah. Um, that, that is going to make it so that they can win. If I figure it out, you know, I'm going to tilt it to my direction. Yeah. You can't, it's math. The math says you lose. Yeah. And and so that really, in many ways, like you mentioned, uh, the difference between me as a as a, a manager or founder, founder and the difference between me as an investor. Yeah. I view investment as math. Very, very calculated. Yeah, it's just kinda, math. Yeah. Not, same not, as the casino games, except emotional. you can you're, actually you're, win. You're not falling in love with them. <laughs> no, yeah. no. And, and it's just a, it's just a question of risk and reward and, and uh, looking at your reward and weighting it with the risk and trying to mitigate the risk yeah. ways that you believe you can do that. Um, but yeah, it, it was very, it, it was very helpful to me at, at that age and still has been. I, I worked in casinos. I, I, I tended bar and casinos and waited tables and parked cars and swept trash. And like, you're truly in that. I, industry. Yeah. Like yeah. it was, it was so easy to get a, a, a job, a well-paying job. Yeah. Like I paid for my mission sweeping trash. I was on the grounds crew at a casino. Come on. They paid me $12 and 80 cents an hour. That's crazy. That's like what in today's dollars, you're like 30 bucks. It was an hour, great. Yeah. Bucks and an and hour, so yeah. I would do 32 hours of the week. It was a union job. Uh, and, and I got 1280 for 32 hours. And then I, I got a, a rate bump. I was as a class C, what was it called? Operational Engineers Union. So as a class C member of the Operational Engineers Union, I got 1280 an hour for 32 hours of the week. And then uh, one day of the week, I bumped up to class B and I, and I got 1488. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> As like and, a high school kid. Yeah, yeah. Just out. So the grind was just... And what, it was, what, it was, was graveyard it, shift. I but worked. What, was it your parents telling you to go work? Or was it like this desire that like, I just, I want to go make money for myself? I, like, there there was, wasn't money floating around. Yeah, so so it was there yeah, was a need there was in a the need. family. There was yeah. a need. And um, yeah, it, it, it was just very much like mentioned to the various casino executives there in the ward. <laughs> <laughs> that you needed to make money for your mission. So, so, so talk, plug to, you talk, talk to me about, about that. I'm kind of switching topics, but I'm always fascinated. How do you think not having money growing up influenced your ability to make a lot of money? I don't know that it influenced my ability to make a lot of money. Desire? I think those are separate, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, a, like ability... Ability, is, uh, I think, is a separate equation. But desire, absolutely. But desire kind of precedes the ability a lot of the times, or at least it the skill. To, you know to build what I mean? Like, ability, yeah, right. like it. So, so I, I think that's where it impacted. I, I think there was a desire 
to provide for my family in a different way. Yeah. So my dad, he had been in that casino space. That was his knowledge base. That was his expertise. That's what he was good at. Um, he decided to leave that space for a variety of reasons and found that none of his skills translated very effectively. Yeah. So, so he went he had a from, very specialized skill set. Yeah. He went from a vice president of administration you know, at, at a at a casino owned by Donald Trump in in the early nineties, uh, late eighties, um, where he was making one hundred fifty, one hundred sixty grand a really year. Really good money back then. Um, to the Today. assistant manager of Wendy's. Come on. In a, in a twelve month period, and and watching that, I was like, okay, I don't ever want to do that. How old were you when that happened? And that was uh, late high school. So, okay. so sophomore, junior, senior year of high school, watching this yeah. precipitous decline. And then he would, he would flirt back with the casino space to keep the wolf away and then, you know, try and sell insurance or whatever. But it, it was something that was very informative to me of, okay, I, again, going to kind of that theme of risk and reward. Yeah. Um, he did not have a skill set that was transferable and that was translatable. And so I wanted to make sure that whatever I ended up with, it, it was that. It was this kind of baseline skill set, this toolkit that would make me money regardless. Did you know it was law from day one or was it just? No, cause, cause the you, law thing was very late. Because you said academic scholarships. So you were smart. Yeah. Like you, like. As I did far okay as like, in school. Yeah, yeah. As far as like, and, and anybody who spends time with you just knows you're really smart. Like you, you, <laughs> you not only like know a lot of things you're really good at articulating points and get and taking complex things and breaking them down to very simple things or concise points yeah um but that was always just something that that you were all you always had that like as yeah. far as like I, I don't know about some, the ability to articulate the, I think the, I the picked horse, that up the horsepower though the, the like pure you, horsepower, you were born yeah. with that I was pretty yeah. smart yeah yeah um but the law thing was late like I, I graduated with a degree in economics. Okay. Um, with a very mediocre GPA. Interesting. So it wasn't like you weren't that into the grades in college. No, I wasn't very yeah. academically inclined. I spent as many semesters out of school in undergrad as I spent in school. Yeah. In so undergrad. tell me about that because to get an academic scholarship, you've got to have great grades. Yeah. And was it just kind of like, I already got it, it's done? Or like, no, just it was, a different desire in life or what? Man. College was was a little more distracting, and I didn't see a direct correlation uh, between the grades I was getting and and my outcome. Yeah, and and, and I, I wasn't super driven personally at that time. Um, so yeah, I, I was a pretty mediocre student. I think I had a two seven. Wow, at G, uh, at BYU, and then um, I was I, I, I talked my way into a job in a chief economist's office. Um, this guy, Jeff Threadgold, had been the chief economist of KeyBank, went out on his own. He was uh, His office supported Zions Bank, which was a primary government bond dealer and required yeah. to have a chief economist. Yeah. Right. So it, he did that and he, he'd do like speaking events and stuff. And he had hired a academically much better um, and, and, and much more skilled uh, econ kid uh, instead of me when I applied for the job. And 
30 days after I applied for the job, I stopped back by his office. You know, he told me, Hey, I got this other guy. He's way better. I just stopped back by his office to see how things had gone with the, with the other guy. And the other guy had already told him he was, he was on his way to going and, and getting a master's in econ. And, and so Jeff, you know, exited that guy and hired me. That's amazing. Just opportunistic. Yeah. Right? Um, so yeah, I, I, I was doing that. I was working in that environment. My, my wife was much more driven academically. You guys got married when? Um, it would have been 98, 99, but like through that college experience. Yeah. So, so, um, at about her third year of college, she graduated undergrad in three years. Okay. She was just starting law school when we got married. Yeah. I I remember that now that both of you guys are attorneys. Yeah. So she was starting law school and then I was watching her practice law after I graduated in fact, she graduated law school the same time I finally got through undergrad, even though wow. I started three years prior prior than her. Um, but yeah, so she she had uh, she she was very focused, and that helped me to get more focused. But I was I was sitting there working in in Jeff's office and and doing some selling and managing the phones and doing a little bit of math and 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 keeping some models for him and. Uh, watching what my wife was doing, I'm like, man, I could totally do that. We'd make more money if I was doing that. And and, that, and that's what got me to take just, the LSAT. And you just said, hey, I'm going to go take the LSAT I and did, pass it. I did well enough on the that's LSAT crazy. that I was like, oh, I should apply for a law school. And I applied to one law school and I got in and then I went. And you went to? The U of U. Okay. Yeah. So just up the hill from where we lived. Yeah. And my wife asked me, actually, she's like, don't you think you should maybe apply to a couple law schools? I said, well, if I don't get into this one, I'll do something different. I just need this, you know, kind of a baseline gig. And I don't, I, I don't care what it is. So to me, it wasn't like, yeah, I have this passion. This is my career. No. This is going to be I'll go be an I... architect or I'll go, wow. be, I'll, I'll do something else. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And, and it was, it was really fascinating, especially early in law school because. When, but when you're like describing yourself as like not super ambitious. <laughs> I see you now and I'm like, this is one of the most ambitious people I've ever met in my life. Yeah. Like it's, it's like the, like projects that you're signing up for are massive projects yeah. in a lot of different, like, when did that switch? Like, when did it go from like, I'm law not, school. that, that was when you learned it. Law school. Yeah. First semester of law school is like this incredibly important semester for your outcome, your ability to make money um, as a lawyer. And, and if you do well in that first semester, you're going to make some money as a lawyer. And if you don't, you're not. Um, and, and so I, I was, I was doing this to make money. I wasn't doing it for, you, you geared know. up for that first yeah. semester. So I thought I had killed it, man. I thought I was so good. I, I thought I had studied so well and done so well only to find that I, I was in at the very top of the bottom half. <laughs> Come on. Middle of my class, right? The lower part, middle of my class. you were certain that you were like upper upper quartile. Oh, dude, I thought I was top 10. (laughs) And I was, I was bottom half. And I I remember we're looking at my grades in my wife's uh, office and we look at it together and she turns to me and was like, well, I mean, you, 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 you could, you could, you can do a little better than this. I think. And, I, and I'm like a little better. This is like, this is awful. She's also, are you, are you going to quit law school? No, 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 I can't. That's unacceptable. There's no way that those kids are smarter than me. I can figure this out. I just haven't figured it out. And, and by the time I graduated, I was in the top 10% wow. there at the U. 
Um, because it was just I a belief. It, it was I just think, a belief yeah. that they're not better than me. Right. And, and a willingness to, to go to the mat and figure that out. Yeah. Like I, I went to every professor who would take a meeting and asked them how to think about getting good grades. I figured out who all the best students were. And I went and asked them what they did and compared it to what I did. I built my own process. Well, what you're describing there has created more success for me than any other habit in my life, which is interview people that are the best in their field and just copy them. Yeah. Like just, and, and people don't do it. Like it's so fun to hear you say, I went and I figured out who was the best. Yep downloaded their secrets and applied it, took the, you know, and I'm like, that has changed my entire career. I could give you fate. Like we were just with Brian Murphy. Like I'm not a finance guy. I dropped out of college. Like that's not my world, but there are people that are brilliant Yeah, and they'll share their stories with you. And if you go to the ones that are worth talking to, you get really good maps of like how no, the world works. You that's know? exactly right. I I was talking to, I think it was a, a kid studying entrepreneurship. Yeah. And they're like, tell me your best business ideas you haven't gotten around to. I said, I don't have business ideas. What are you talking about? I, I, I'm not trying to create something or invent something or make something new and novel and interesting. I'm trying to take 99% copy and do one little thing a little yeah. bit better. Be be more charming, be more entertaining, uh, make it a little cheaper, make it a little nicer, you know, something. But I want to copy everything up to that. Point. You don't want to reinvent the wheel, <laughs> not at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. And 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 most most things have been thought of before. And and the example I gave to this student, I, I pulled out my iPhone, which I think is one of the 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 most transformative products. Of course, right? It changed how everyone w- works. And I said, you know, w- look at the iPhone. Uh, iPhone's a great example of what you're talking about, right? And she says, yeah. I said, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not an example of what you're talking about. I, I had a BlackBerry before I had an iPhone. A lot of people did. And and that had my email and it had internet and it had a phone capability and it yeah. kept all my contacts and it had a clock. It is fundamentally not different than my iPhone. Yeah. So why didn't it transform how everyone operated? I said, iPhone's a good version of a BlackBerry. I, I remember when they first came out and the BlackBerry was it. Like that, that was, oh, if, yeah. you, if you wanted the phone, had it was almost like a keyboard. You had like every <laughs> single did. note, you know, <laughs> and, and it was like the business phone. And I remember the iPhone came out and I had my buddy that had one. Terrible batteries, you drop it, the whole screen shatters. And I'm just like, there's no way that catches on. Yeah. Like that, that's so gimmicky. And it was like a year or two later and every, like the, it took over the world. Totally. And it, it hasn't stopped, totally. you know. I had a BlackBerry and we had, uh, I was at one of the law firms I worked at, which was this uh, Amlaw 100 firm. So top yeah. 100 firms in yeah. the world called Ballard Spar. And all the associates had Blackberries, the blue ones. We called them blueberries, right? But the blue Blackberries, the nice ones. And uh, they had a whole training course on how to use it. And there was like a book on how to use it. And my son was not quite a year old. And we went by an Apple store um, or maybe it was a phone store that had an, an iPhone in it. You know, memory's not that great. Yeah. But, um, and he walked up to an iPhone that was on display. And remember how it used to have the little block to open it? You yeah. slide the block across. So he goes, slides the block, and and engages one of the apps. And he's, he's like, not even one. Is your son. Is my son, yeah. And at that moment, I was like, I got to get trained to use this piece of crap. And yeah, like a whole one-year-old yeah. did this thing like this, right? Wow. Boom. Like I, I was certain 
that that Apple had something huge then. I bought an iPhone, got one for myself and my wife, dipped, uh, got rid of my flip phone, you know, yeah, and then started the trying to talk my, yeah. my my firm into letting me use my iPhone for my firm emails instead of my BlackBerry. That's, yeah, you you go back to those times, oh, and it's going back to that point of saying like, just do how it better. how did you rise to the top? And that formula, like, talk about like applying that in well, other and the formula. Uh, to, the formula to me isn't just like <clears throat> finding experts and asking them. It's, it's being internally honest about weakness yeah, and admitting, Hey, I should be good at this and I'm not, I should know this and I don't, you know, like being able to admit that don't let your ego get in the way yeah, of your fake ignorance. It, yeah. Fake like, you know it. Yeah. Which I think most people do. It's like, Oh, you, you posture as if you have the answers. Right. And, and, and it's unproductive. You know, so that I mean? to me is the first part of the, of the pattern. The first part of the pattern is figure out your weakness that you can admit to yourself as a weakness yeah, and, and that you need to make a strength, whether it's how you analyze investment opportunities or how you analyze raising your kid, you know, how, how do you coach the, the junior jazz basketball team, whatever it is, yeah. uh, identify that as a weakness and, and then go through your personal Rolodex, identify all the people who are experts at that, talk to them, yeah. expand out one person from them gain like a real so, understanding super fascinating of topic. And I've got opinions on this, but I want to hear yours. How do you think about strengths and weaknesses? What do you mean? When, when you kind of, you know, when you're thinking about your career, is it to be well-rounded? Is it to double down and go in on the things you're great at? You know, how, how have you built? Cause it feels like you're kind of good at most things. Like you, you you're pretty well-rounded. Um, it, it, it's not intentionally well-rounded. It's more like needs-based. Out of necessity. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's run in the process. You know, I was, I was at what was called ProStar at the time and, um, we needed to be better operationally, for example. Yeah. Um, and so I, I engaged directly in our operational leadership to see what was happening and why we were performing the way we were and how we could perform better. And uh, realized that that needed we needed a whole lot more strength in that area. So I read anything I could find just on, leaned in on on Six Sigma, everything yeah. on how to do lean, everything on you know uh, how, how did the Kaizen process work in Japan. Just wow. I, I, I learned everything I could because the necessity was I yeah. needed to well, not suck. Yeah, we need to operationalize as a as yeah. A we needed to get really good, and I need to. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you say you studied lean and Kaizen and six because I can see that like in those later businesses, right. they, were, they were operational machines. You know, you right. go from like, hey, we need to get good to like that is your strength is that we just it execute one. better than everybody else, Absolutely. you know, similar industry, but we execute better. So, so it became a strength, but it was a weakness and it was something that was like, okay. Do you think it was a weakness or do you think it was like an undeveloped? Because I like my personal feeling is it's very hard to take weaknesses yeah. to strengths. Like, and I, I just haven't seen it that much. I've kind of seen like, yeah, I don't know if it was a weakness. It's, it's potentially, it, it was just an undeveloped yeah. area. Right, because in, in large degree, even thinking back to when I was doing waiting tables or tending bar, I always would turn everything into a process. Pretty operational. Here's the process yeah, yeah, yeah. you do. Yeah. Like, 
I don't know if you've ever thought about driving a street sweeper through a parking garage. I've never I, thought about that. But I can tell yeah. you the process. <laughs> the one I developed for myself, right? It's and, beautiful. And, and how you go about doing it. How do you do it so it's perfect, takes the least amount of time. See, you, know? you describe it as a weakness. I'm like, there's no way that's a weakness. Like, I, like, but, this, but anything's a weakness until you develop it. Yeah. Right. You can have someone with amazing lung capacity, but are they a great distance runner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they're just a dude with amazing lung capacity. Yeah. And then when they develop that lung capacity for the use case. It's that parable of the talents. And it's kind of, you know, we'll get to this later, but you kind of, it's kind of what life's all about Mm -hmm. is just seeing how, what you can do with the hand that you're dealt, you know, like how, how far can you take it? How far can you push it? Yeah. But, but for me, absolutely. I'm, I feel like I am a pretty well-rounded executive now, Yo. but it was always necessity driven. It wasn't interest driven. I, I didn't say to myself, man, I would really love to get my mind around finance. You just it, had to get your mind around Instead it was like, finance. dude, someone needs to figure out finance Yo. and I'm somebody. So I'm going to go figure out finance. Right. And, and then yeah, who well, do I know that knows if this? If I was observing things that you're really good at, it's figuring things out. Like yeah. you, you get to the, get to the core of things pretty efficiently. Like you get yeah. in and you get your hands dirty and you get pretty. Yeah. And that that's an important root cause of the problem. You I, know? I, I like that. Yeah. And, and and that's an important attribute. I think if I had a, a, an, a dominant strength that resulted in, in my business success, my personal success, it, it would be a willingness to dig into any topic and get try in. and figure it out. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Get smart. Get smart about it, figure it out, translate it into something I could understand. Um, or, or that, that I had some background in yeah. and make it familiar and then gain capability. That whole process of Kaizen, it's just about like getting a little bit better every day, right? Mm-hmm. It's stripping, it's kind of right. simplifying, it's getting the steps down to kind of the very most essential pieces. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, it's about going to the activity directly that, that I think is the most important part of it. Interesting. It's the part people skip a lot when they're trying to become good at something is they, they want to beat around it or, you know, instead circumvent of just, it. Instead of just going just straight go directly in. to it. Yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah. it. That's the fundamental part of that whole discipline Yeah, is to go and be present and watch the activity and participate in the activity and get smart. So, so talk to me about this transition of, you know, I'm at a law firm, I'm working 78, like the badge of honor at those things is if you bill more hours than anybody else, you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? They, yeah. they just oh, have yeah. this culture of work. Yep. And how do you go from that? to entrepreneur, you know, what, what's that transition like? Um, so I, I had been at, at an Amla 100 firm, uh, for three years, I transitioned a lateral, they call it to a, a, a regional firm. So a smaller firm okay, <clears throat> with a really great attorney that I could work for and learn from and be mentored by. Yeah. And he was fantastic. Name is Craig Marriger. I, I truly believe he was the best litigator in Salt Lake the whole time he practiced. And and he only did this narrow segment of law. He did architect and engineer malpractice defense. He was just a... But I, I truly think he was the best. He was the best strategist. He he knew his area of law better than anybody. He he was always winning, even when he was losing. Wow. So so if he had a bad case, he would settle out better than some other person would settle out. Yeah. He was just he was so good for He the best outcome clients. from yeah. every... So I, I learned a ton from him. But um, after about three years there... I had reached a point, there's a little, there were two things really that pushed me. There's, there's a little crazy that you become if all you do is fight people. 
Like if, if what you do for yeah, you a start living, getting wired. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and you know, that feeling like when you've just had an altercation, you just argue with someone high stress, you just disagree. Almost you like know, testosterone that internal pump, feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got a fight or flight just kicked in. Yeah. So you got some testosterone surging. Yeah. yeah. Your adrenaline's high. Um, imagine if you had that all day, every day for six years. Right. Like you get a little bit. You just nutty. don't like, don't like kind of who you're becoming. Yeah. Well, and, and the litigators who, who like it, it, it almost seems like it becomes a drug for them and they, they really, they really like it. It's a high. You know? yeah, yeah. It's a high. So then they're actually seeking the conflict a lot of times. Yeah. So, um, that, that was problematic to me. I was observing, my wife was also a litigator. Did you like it? Also like, liked like, it. Did you like, did that scare you? Like, Hey, I, I kind of like didn't scare me, but I like, I, I did. You liked it. Like it's a, it's a surge. It's yeah. an adrenaline surge. Yeah. Right. But, but my wife and I were both litigators at the same time. She was much better than I was. Is that like a problem where you guys like litigate each other? It didn't create a or problem, it like... but it made for weird conversation patterns. Yeah. Right. So, and, and, and. Cause seeing, your wife is like so sharp. So sharp. Like, and She's seeing so it through sharp. the eyes of our friends, like, yeah. like friends that drive on a road trip with us and be like, you guys have the weirdest conversations. And then <laughs> I would like replay the conversation in my mind and go, that is kind of weird. Yeah. Like we're deposing each other instead of like, Talking, Talk, like connecting. Yeah, we're yeah, deposing. Yeah, yeah. We're we're asking pointed questions, and and we're trying to drive to the outcome. And like it, it was, it was a little strange. So, so that was a little strange, but I, I wouldn't say it was catastrophic in any way. But I reached a point also around the second item, which is um, practicing law in that private practice environment. Your time is the only thing that matters. Yeah. Okay. And and you think about your normal work day, like when back when you were at Vivint. You would go to the office and there was a certain amount of socializing that was part of your job. Yo. What if that didn't count? That's crazy. Right? What if that didn't count? I mean, what that, if the that, socializing that, that, That's didn't the only count? thing that like, that's that, that's what gets you to work, right? That's the magic is the, <laughs> you know, and I, I think about Peter Drucker, you know, he wrote so many phenomenal books, but he's got this book, The Effective Executive. Mm -hmm. And Great his book. whole thesis is that about half your schedule should be open. Right. That you have that spontaneous time, you have that creative time. That we were up in a meeting that was supposed to go an hour, and it goes three. Right. And if you're just scheduled down to the minute, the the gold never comes around. But right. then in that world that you're talking about, like you're it, not making money. Right. Like you need to be billing it, those it hours. It creates this yeah. weird neuroses. And so the part of me that, and I love Drucker by the way, but the the part of me that agrees with Peter Drucker was like, no, 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 you have to come to the office. You got to go <clears throat> bounce around to other people's offices. Yo. You got to go talk to people. You've got to connect. You've got to get Managed mentors. Managed by walking you, around, yeah. you know, just like being there. Like, yep. And you, you've got to get all that going. But every six minutes that I spent doing something like that costing money. was a point one that I didn't get to bill. And then your whole life gets dialed into these point ones. Too efficient. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, hey, you know, went to the copier point two. Oh, right. And, and so you're, you're out with your friends and you're like, man, I don't know if that was worth 1.4. Yeah. That trade off. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm, that, gonna, I'm still going to have to bill. You go on vacation. You still have to bill that year. So vacation just means you go on vacation and then you have to more bill later. Right. Home. I was a little irritated being a litigator, but I was also really good at settling cases. You were good. And I, and I did a good job and I had a great mentor and I had a great path there. But it was that hourly thing that kind of pushed me over the edge where I just, I went out to movie, uh, to the movies with my buddy that I was playing, uh, beach volleyball with at the time. And 
And uh, he's is like, that so Ger- I, is that Jared Starling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he was like, so how's, how's work? I said, you know, it just occurred to me today that like, it sucks. <laughs> I'm all, you know, it just like, it hit me today that it sucks. You're not happy. And he's like, well, what? Like, you don't like the litigation. You don't like the law. I said, no, I don't like the the notepad that is next to my computer that says, you know, point three and then, you know, wrote email to so-and-so point. Yeah. Like that makes me crazy. I'm all, you know, this movie is exactly, I can't remember what the number was, but it was like, this movie is 1.8 uh, hours. So you're just thinking like, like that. Yes. that. That's the paradigm that you're seeing. My whole the world, world is yeah. six minute increments. And is your wife seeing it the same way? Like, is she? I think she liked that whole world being she, six minute she liked increments. It. Yeah. I think she, I think that made her feel great. Because my my wife would probably be pretty similar. Like she, the structure yeah. and that, like that. She, she loved she writing likes, it down and yeah, checking yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, the, che- the check the marks. Yeah. And I hated it. And 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 that was when I realized and was willing to verbalize. Hey, I I hate this. Yeah, this you know point one. And he was said, that, was that profound for you to like realize like, yeah, it was crucial. Uh, and, and I don't J- want to do Jer's response was great. He's like, well, I told you before, anytime you want to come work for me, we can figure that out. Wow. And, and I said, well, and I told you before, you actually can't afford me. <laughs> like you can't afford to pay me to do legal work. He's like, well, just do other stuff. I, I, I had done legal work for him, yeah. you know, solve problems for but him. But he stuff. knew you. And he, he knew like, he's like, just do other stuff. You can do whatever, but you know, earn your value. And so we worked out a, a, a reduction in, in income that was pretty substantial. Yeah. Um, Cause when I, you, when you went to visible, it's kind of what type of revenue company? Oh, 10 million. So small revenue, small yeah. company. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, a couple hundred grand of earnings. Okay. So t- tiny company with no excess. So you're, you're grinding, like you taking anything, there's not much to take. Like right. there, there's not much at the end of the right. day. There wasn't yeah. much to take. And so it was very much, I had to bring value. And, and that was, that was at that time preferable to billing hours. That was exciting like, to you. It was, yeah. And, yeah. and, and building something and solving problems before they got ugly. Yeah. That was one of the things that he and I both knew that I could do. He had had some really ugly problems. Yeah. That, that put his family's, uh, well-being and, and his business at, at risk, uh, for lack of, just not getting in front of it. Just not yeah. being proactive. Yeah. And not yeah. understanding what some of his choices Strategically, were. Strategically. Yeah. Getting them all, yeah. getting them all on the table. I mean, I, I remember one time he called me and he said, you know, it must've been a Monday. He called me and said, this company won't pay us and we're going to go out of business because then we won't be able to pay UPS and they're going to shut off our account and we're going to be out of business. And I said, well, all right, we'll send over the contract uh, and and I'll look at it and send over their invoices. And this company hadn't paid him for months. And and I looked through the contract and there was no waiver of consequential damages. So so anything that came of a breach of that contract, they could be sued for. The company could. And so I I said, Jared, these guys, they'll have to pay for the damage to your business. Like they don't just have to pay you what they owe you. They're gonna have to pay for whatever they break by not paying. Wow. You. And he's like, is that normal? I said, no, that's awful lawyering. That's just really bad so lawyering. They left some holes. Yeah, huge hole. And and he's like, well, I really need the money by by uh, Wednesday. And I'm like, you can't get all this money by Wednesday. There's no way. It was it was millions, right? I'm like, there's no way they have it just sitting around. What's the drop dead number you need by Wednesday? And and then we'll work with that. I'll call their their lawyer and I'll work through it. So he gave me the drop dead number. I called the lawyer. 
I said, hey, you guys are, are in breach of this contract. Here's the problem. And he's like, yeah, you know, we'll just pay you when we get to. And I said, no, you botched it, man. You, you didn't waive consequential damages. He's going to go out of business. And I'm already figuring the value of his business. You're going to have to pay for all that too. And he's like, oh, oh, that's a, are you sure? I'm like, read your own contract. <laughs> and, money shows up. Yeah. So Wednesday, Wednesday, they got enough money to, to keep UPS uh, happy. Uh, Friday, they got everything. They didn't even negotiate down the price, which was their original position. Yeah. They wanted to drop the price. No, once they were aware of the, the legal ramifications that of crazy? that breach. And so Jared thought I was a miracle worker. Oh my gosh. He's like, dude, you can do magic. And I'm like, no, I can't. I can read. But you absolutely could do magic. I, <laughs> I can, I, I can look, read look at what you guys created together. And I'm like, that is a great partnership. Yeah. So, so he really felt that, that I could bring some value. He valued you a lot. And I, and I came over and, and I, I feel like I did. I feel like I brought value and, uh, he and I were a very good ham and egg. Yeah. You know, still are right. Yeah. Yeah. A good, a good team. He's, he's much less risk averse than I am. Yeah. I'm not super risk averse, but I'm not entrepreneurial in that way. And he is, he's pretty entrepreneurial. Yeah. yeah. And so that push Which makes sense. He was the one that founded the company That's and right. he was doing it. Yeah. So he was pushing the cadence and, 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 willing to take the risks. And then I was mitigating the risk yeah. and saying, well, yeah, I'm fine with you taking a risk of that size, but here's what I need to feel comfortable with. And, and that, that became a really good thing where yeah. he was pushing, uh, he was kind of the engine and I was driving Yeah, and that was very good. That's super cool. So talk to me about 10 million to Sinosure. 10 million until the Sinosure deal. Um, yeah, you know, the the biggest thing that I realized early on in that business was that we kept getting fired. <laughs> our best clients, our biggest clients fired us like every year. Yep. And so so and and they fired us for operational yeah, failures. Elaborate, elaborate they fired us things. because they they didn't understand what we were charging them for. They fired us because um they thought they could do it themselves. Yeah. There there were a lot of reasons they were firing us, but they were just firing us all the time. Sometimes yeah. Jared fired them. Yeah. That also happened a lot. Yeah, he's um, just like I can't. He would deal go with to this meet anymore. with them and they would tell him, you know, your business sucks. And 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 he would be like, Great, Screw we're off. not working for you. <laughs> <laughs> so there 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 were some things there and and I just really felt legal training made me very capable of convincing clients um that they wanted to stay. So I said, I'll, I'll take that over. We're not going to get fired again. So, so the first big thing I did was work out how we were going to manage our customers, how we would change our invoices so the customer could see that Under, value was it. given, value yeah. received, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? How we would answer their questions and concerns. Just to kind of a better user experience. Yep. How yeah, we yeah, would yeah. lift that user experience and, and um, how to do that so that it became what we did well. Yeah. Right. Cause in, in the, cause you obviously weren't doing it well. No, like it was, we were awful. it was a problem, but, but the whole space was awful, right? The fulfillment space when I went to see, cause again, I tried to figure out what everyone else was doing and yeah. copy that. What I found was it's bad everyone everywhere. was bad at it. Yeah. 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 Right. And so, uh, warehousing and fulfillment services, everyone hated their user Fairly experience. new though, like fair, like it kind of an emerging growing with the internet. Like it's yeah. kind of this beast that, you know, now you look at it and it's so, everything's an internet business. Every yeah. real estate, you know, new building going up is a Some warehouse, industrial right? warehouse. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it, it's so internet focused, but when you were doing it, that it was early. It was. It, it was earlier it was. in that kind of Earlier evolution. in the cycle and, and, you know, 
Uh, the people who used those services were multi-level marketing companies, direct response companies, and the very beginning of the internet. Companies, yeah, interesting. Right? So, so um, figuring out that the user experience was awful uh, was crucial, and then figuring out how to go about okay, what do I fix first? What do I fix so talk, second? Talk what to do him I about like third? your philosophy on customer experience. Like when you think about customer experience, what for, for that business, the, the most important thing to me was that a fulfillment house was not transparent to their customers, but was a crucial part of their customers, customers experience. And so I wanted to make it transparent. I wanted them to understand what we were doing, why we were doing it. Yeah. I wanted them to feel like our warehouse was theirs. So I took the novel approach of allowing the customers to come in the warehouse uh, whenever they wanted to, uh, rather than say, you've got to give me 48 hours notice and blah, blah, blah. Given access. Yeah. Which was so, like an innovative idea. It like, was. Probably like no one else is doing that. I also felt it was really important that the customers knew that they were paying me for some value. And so what was most common in the space at the time was a very summary invoice. Uh, last month's services, hard cost, uh, you know, $400,000, 12% markup. No breakdown. Right. Yeah. And and we reduced it to activity level breakdown in every invoice. Which is so similar to law. Like, yeah. Like when you get law invoice, it, it shows exactly. But law, it says time and this this showed activity. Yeah. So it was, Value. hey. Value. Yeah. We, we got this many orders out and these orders had these units and they went to these places and this is what your shipping costs. Because when somebody's looking at that from a high costs. level, they just don't know. All they know is like, hey, this is a big bill. It's a big bill. Yeah. And 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 I realized real early on that the um, the the bookkeeper that was paying the bill, the the person in charge of AP, was our biggest detractor. Yeah, they didn't, the, that, that they're, they're, they're was kind of there. the gatekeeper. Yeah, they're they're <laughs> like the one that's like yeah, they're firing. looking at they're looking at the check and they're going, all I know that is that fulfillment services occurred. Yeah, what the crap are they doing? Yeah. Yeah. And so instead it was, okay, let's tell them how many pallets they have. Let's tell them uh, how many orders. Let's know their business better than they know their business. Yeah. Yeah. And really just give them some transparency. If this was their warehouse, what would it look like? Yeah. They would know those things. Okay, let's give them that. That's so insightful. So that was the change that we, the the, the first big change we made. fanatic on customer experience. I love receiving great service. I love giving great service. And I like, despise a bad service experience. You know what I mean? And so, and yep. I, so I, I admire companies so much that care about that. Cause I really do think it's like, that's attitude, right? Most of that's an attitude thing. It is. You know what I mean? It's like, we care enough that we're going to go solve this problem and make it. it. I think about like this, like example of you're getting your tooth pulled out and one guy, you know, you tie the string around the tooth and tie it to the door and you slam the door and it's bloody and it's like this horrific experience. And the next practice you put on the Novocaine and you're listening to some nice music or watching a movie and you get the two and both of them, the exact same outcome, right? Except one of them's like a, actually an enjoyable experience. And the other one's pretty traumatic. Yeah. And you think about like that with your business and how much equity value it created. Right. Just, 
It's not that it's the same bill. No, no, it is. It, you know, in or fact, maybe there's an opportunity. It to, maybe bill. it's an opportunity to increase <laughs> it because you can, like, if you can really, people will pay for value well, always. You know what I mean? The, one of the things we found was that there was lots of stuff we were doing that we weren't invoicing for. You didn't even know. But once we started itemizing, we were now invoicing yeah. more stuff. So we actually probably charged them more. That's amazing. Um, but it, it required real empathy. Yeah. Like we had to put ourselves into the shoes of our customers and say, and into that like controller. That's what are we the getting? One, yeah, right? you got this individual. Like, what are we getting? Yep. And how does it look to us? And how can we give them what they need in order to feel good about this activity? Wow. So that was a crucial development in the business. And part of what came out of that was a realization that we weren't very good at picking orders. Like we were pretty mediocre operation. Interesting. So that was that was when I kind of dug into that operational piece. Was was at that like. I, it also exposed to me what Jared's superpower was. Was the creation. Well, like what he the... was amazing at at that time, he had put a lot of time and effort into understanding the parcel world of the United States. Okay. So the FedEx, UPS, USPA, USPS, DHL, um, that whole universe, uh, he had really put a lot of time and expertise into and effort into understanding that space. Because he he was certain that's where he could make much yeah. more money than on on building individual orders. Yeah, and and that got exposed as I started understanding our customers' viewpoint and and why they thought the way they did and why that irritated Jared. Yeah, because they were thinking of it one way and he thought they should think of it differently, but he's not a great communicator, and so he was super frustrated that they were doing dumb stuff, and, and he and I had a moment actually we. I, I was really client focused. So we had a client who had messed up, uh, shipped their product uh, via an air carrier. And the air carrier um, is a pretty well-known company uh, located out of Memphis. And the the product had gotten bumped off of the next leg. So it was stuck in Memphis and it kept get, getting bumped day after day after day. They can't and, get their product. And it, and it needed to get to Salt Lake. It had actually flown from, I think their manufacturing was in Arizona. So it had flown from like Arizona to Memphis and then got stuck there. And it needed to be in Salt Lake so that it could go out and satisfy file these back orders. So um, I, I, I used Jared's relationships and pushed Jared and he called uh, the company and got a friend of his who was in Memphis to go and get the stuff, two pallets, get physically get it on the plane and make sure the plane did not bump it before it took off. So that happened. And, and that meant it was arriving like at eight in the evening yeah. to Salt Lake. So then I took the truck and went and picked up the Come pallets on. from the I airport. I love that. Put stuff. the two pallets in the. In, that, 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 those are like that's like the legends of like companies. That's like special that, that, stuff, right? Those are the stories that they talk about. You know, this is who we are. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the owner is picking up the pallet so in his truck. We had had all the employees before they went home for the day build out all of the orders that could go out if this product arrived. You know, the the oldest orders that needed to go out. Yeah. And then we were going to get the product and just put it in the boxes, close the boxes and put the labels on and send it out. And it was, uh, it was UPS that was doing the delivery. So we had a, I can't remember the pickup time, but I think it was like nine o'clock was UPS delivery. So we had these orders all out on a conveyor belt. I come back with the, with the two pallets, unload it. And Jared and I are supposed to be putting the items in the boxes. And each box has been labeled with the shipping label so that all we have to do is tape it and send it. And Jared, rather than loading the boxes, he started loading the boxes with the product. And, and then he's like, 
walking down this line of all these orders, looking at the label and muttering to himself. And then he'd go to the next one, look at the label, mutter to himself. And I'm like, Star, his nickname Star. Well, Star, you got to, you got to help me, man. The UPS guy is on his way and, and I don't know what you're doing, but you need to help me get this stuff in these boxes so we can get these orders out. All these are wrong. I'm like, what do you mean they're wrong? Like they're going to the wrong place or the wrong carrier. What do you mean they're wrong? Well, they're just wrong. They just did them wrong. Like who, who did them wrong? Well, the, the customer, they chose to use UPS on all these. They should all go on the postal service. Great. Can you explain that to me tomorrow? But right now, can you help me get all this stuff in these boxes? Because the UPS guy's coming. And so like we load the boxes. UPS guy comes. We're three quarters of the way done. We're literally, he would shut his door and we would open it again and put more stuff. Come on. Them. Like we're fighting with the guy. We get all this stuff. It goes out the door. The next day, I'm like, okay, now that the problem is solved, what, what are you talking about? They did it wrong. What do you mean it should go USPS? What are you talking about? And he walked me through the analysis and he was right. It was about $2 cheaper per order to do it the way he felt it should be done. Yeah. Uh, but the software at the time wouldn't accurately couldn't calculate it. it. Yeah, it couldn't do it. And, and the, the cost in, and customers, the a lot of individual money. choices of those customers were hurting themselves. Yeah. And, and I had this aha moment where I realized Jared's superpower, what our real advantage was going to be, wasn't going to be great customer service. It was going to be around this parcel stuff. Interesting. And we were going to save them real money. Wow. And so that was that's one transformative order, two event. bucks an order. Yeah. You scale that over thousands, if not millions of orders. And it's just, it's like. You're, cr you're creating crazy value for Absolutely. the people you work with that somebody else isn't creating. Absolutely. And at the time, we probably had a million and a half dollars a year of spend with the U.S. Postal Service. Wow. When I sold the business to Maersk 11 years later, uh, we did about $1.2 billion Come with the on. U.S. Postal Service. It was our, it was was our super thousand power. X? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it was big. Holy smokes. <laughs> right. And and it was because we, Jared, Jared really understood it differently than everyone else did because he was a warehouse guy. He knew. He looked at them as, he looked at the labels that came out of the software. He looked at it as boxes of stuff. And those boxes had attributes, weight, dimensions, you know, breakability, time and transit it needed to hit, that kind of stuff. Most of the people in the space looked it. at it as a set of numbers. For sure. How far does it go? How much does it weigh? How much does it cost? Yeah. And that didn't take into account the dimensions. Interesting. And the dimensions really matter. This little novel insight. And it was kind of the difference in like a lot of the equity value in your business. Huge difference maker. Yeah. And, and it made us... Um, a big reseller of the postal service. Yeah. It made us a great fulfillment provider because we had this advantage on everybody against our competitors. You know, we went and bought other fulfillment companies knowing that we would buy it. We got for, a cost advantage. Yeah. yeah. We'd buy it for say $27 million. And we knew that exactly how it operated, but with our contracts, wow. it would be worth 50 or 60 million instead of 27 million. It's incredible. Yeah. And so we were able to make very accretive acquisitions. We were able to make, you know, going back to our early conversation around analysis and bets. You were making decisions I was, on the data. Yeah. I was making bets. I, I'm looking at, Hey, I, you, you were we the can, casino. You, you can, had the math in your favor. Yeah. We, we bought a business that was our, our size. We bought a business that was 50% of our size and, and took our entire year's uh, earnings yeah. in order to buy it. 
Um, and, and we did bets like that. Very aggressive bets. You could do big bets. Cause you just knew we you're, felt you're we like, had this better is just a math problem. We're, yeah. we're going to get that arbitrage. And that math if, showed yeah. we, we were very conservative on it. You know, one example I like to share, we, we identified a business market value was $14 million. They had had private equity look at it. Everybody agreed what the multiple should be. It was Mark, established. Market value was $14 million. Seller didn't want to sell unless it was 27 or 28 million. And so we bought it from him for the price he wanted to sell at, not at market value. But we believed it was worth $54 million. Because, because of the data and because of because just of your our, metrics. Our, it's just layering on your business. We know what our contracts are. We don't have to change anything about the business except these contracts. Plug it in. Yeah. And we were we were wrong. It was probably worth closer to 70 to us that oh, so next year. So you guys year. were conservative. Yeah. So it was about $2 million. It was doing about $2 million a year of, of EBITDA, the 12 I think about like preceding, this, and about $10 million after. Peter Till. Have you ever read? There's a book called Zero to One by Peter Till. Mm-mm. But he talks about this idea of like, what's the contrarian idea that you believe to be true that the rest of the world doesn't? And I think about that idea and I think about you guys and you have this contrarian view that you have tremendous conviction on. Mm -hmm. I mean, you go to a private equity process and the world kind of says you're worth 14. Right. And this guy says, I know I'm worth 27. (laughs) And you guys are looking at it with a contrarian lens, but a lens you have a lot of conviction on. Right. And that's the difference in the equity value of your company. You right. know what I mean? That that arbitrage and that idea and that conviction and being right. Right. You and know what I mean? Right. That there's a that's difference the between part. like, hey, I have this contrarian. <laughs> but you guys kind of knew. Yeah. You guys, you guys knew your business cold. And and we found another. We found other areas like that. Like we we had other acquisitions um, where we we disagreed with how a business was thought of. Yeah. You know, they thought they were a SaaS business and we thought they were a shipping business. Um, we had a business that um, we we thought we could buy better than them in freight, right? We had a business where we thought we could run the warehouse better yeah. than they were running it. So we, we had a lot of thesis that we ran in our acquisition you would strategy. make investment decisions on based off there's inefficiency yeah. here. And, or they're and not, betting on what we knew. They're not unlocking the value on this, yeah. but we're picking it up, yeah. you know. As if it's one price, but we know it, it's another based off of our experience. And it, it was really helpful. We talked a little earlier about luck. Maybe, maybe that's some of our luck was that. Well, so I'm like putting like, I'm putting like investing and operating in different buckets, but you're kind of investing the whole They're way. The you, same. you were an M&A firm. Like you guys were a roll up firm. We did. We did good M&A. Uh, half yeah. of our growth, when we sold to Marisk, half of our growth was organic. Half of our go- growth was inorganic. Yeah. So, so yeah, we did, we did good acquisitions, but a a lot of those acquisitions were enabled by the fact that we were now operating. Great operators. Yeah. Yeah. You knew your business and and innovating in your business. We knew where we were different and we, we would try and we'd find a target that was broken in one of the ways we believed we were good at. Yeah. And then we would, we would look at what's the value that we would now create. And, And it was very much a, um, is this business more valuable to us than its current ownership? Yeah. That was the analysis we were doing. Yeah. And, and ultimately that's like I was saying, there's, there's a, this thing when I'm talking about luck, one of the things that was very lucky for us is we sold at a great point in the market. Yeah. That was luck. But also it was the mindset that we had. If, if something was more valuable to us than to someone else, we should buy it. Yeah. And if, if something was more yeah. valuable to them than to which us, is, we should which, sell which, it. Was that hard for Jared? 
I think so. Because like I've found that the entrepreneur falls in love with the business more. Yeah. Like the, the there's kind of that, you know, a degree of separation where you don't love it the same. You love it right. cause you're pat, but you don't, you're not married to it. I tell people all the time, when it's your I'm child, not an entrepreneur. Jared yeah, is. <laughs> yeah. Well, when it's your child, it's different. And, and yeah. you see that where it's like people lose their identity when they, they have a pile Very of much. money, but I lost my child, you know, yeah. and it's, but that's not you. Like, you're no, like, no, I was, to me, it was very much. And I, I told the signature guys this, I said, yeah, if they offer a dollar more than I think it's worth, I'll sell that's it to incredible. them. And, and, and I, I remember, you know, one of the guys going, no, 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 don't say that. I mean, I'm not going to tell them that, <laughs> but that's my analysis point. My analysis point is if those guys are so good, more, the signature guys are like, they're great. I'm an investor with those guys and I just love the way they think about value. I love the way they think about partnership, you know? Yeah. I love the way they think about businesses yeah, as well. Yeah. They like uh, pedestrian businesses that cash flow. Yeah, kind of more sleepy, than sexy businesses. Yeah, sleep, that sleepy, don't. boring. Yeah. I'm in one with them that buys like toilets. You know, yeah. it's like it's, and I'm like, that's a sweet business. You're like porta potties, you yep. know, and you're porta potties, like, caffeine, things that people need. Yeah, it's a customer. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's very true. So I own a shift gears for a minute. You had a run in volleyball that was like legendary. On the side, like not casual. I'm playing on the weekends. Like, yeah, we, we you trained guys, you guys and we were ran pretty the good. table. Yeah, yeah. Like, like went for it. How does that come about? Um, like, did you play volleyball growing up? No. Like, was and this that's like part a, of why it came about. Right. I, I didn't, I learned how to play volleyball at BYU. Um, BYU, of course, uh, amazing men's and women's volleyball programs. Yeah. And, and, and especially the men's is, um, Kind of been yeah, a perennial, probably the best power. program in the last yeah. f- uh, forty years, right? Won some national but, championships, but the, right? The women's is is I think third all time on the wins list, or something crazy like that. Like these two are are epic programs. Think of North Carolina in basketball. They're that you know, good. Th- think yeah. of Alabama in football. Yeah. They're they're at that level. Um, and so I I learned to play in a gym class at BYU and found that the sport was actually probably better suited for me than the sports I played in high school. High school, I, I got varsity letters in in track, soccer, and basketball. And so you were an athlete. Like did, it wasn't yeah, like about being an yeah. athlete. But it, but volleyball was like the stuff I, I was good at in hoop happened in volleyball. The stuff I was good at in soccer happened in volleyball. The and footwork, the, the jumping, footwork, seeing, the seeing something coming to you that's spinning and the judging the spin and making yeah, a choice. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and then, and then, um, you know, the mental pressure that I loved, I was a high jumper in high school. And I, one of the reasons I loved it was that pressure. You're yeah. by yourself and in a dual meet format, you're the last person competing. Wow. So everyone's watching you. And if it's coming down to your event, everyone's watching you and they want you to screw up or succeed. And I loved it. You love the pressure. <laughs> the pressure was the best. Yeah. And, and volleyball, especially beach volleyball, two on two, you have to do something every time. You don't get to hide. And whatever your weakness is, the other team is going to try and take advantage of it. And that mental pressure, I really liked it. So um, I started playing a lot of sand, two-on-two, grass, two-on-two volleyball. Uh, just as, as a hobby to start? Just, just kind of just, just loving it? Yeah. When, when did it switch to like, I'm just loving this to, I'm really good and I'm actually going to go be competitive? When I, when I got to law school, I had watched Jared 
Starling play yeah. uh, at a tournament just he was prior a freak, to law right? school. Like, really great yeah. player, unbelievably good player, and he had come up playing, played on the you know junior Olympics and all that. Because that's how you guys met, right? Yeah. Well, we met because I I I, I watched him play at a tournament. And I was just deciding that I was going to become good at the sport. Yeah. I was playing. It was fun. It was entertaining. And then I went, uh, I should do this for, like, I should be good at this. I should be exceptional at this. So I went to the best court and watched oh him play. So I'm watching these guys play. And one of them is Jared. Jared. Yeah. yeah. One of them is Jake Gibb, four-time Olympian. Um, so one like of, some real players. One yeah. of them is, is Joe uh, Famasino, who who played on the AVP for a long time on the professional beach circuit. And the other, a, a guy named Corey Kamenao. So I, I later on knew all these guys. But at the time, I knew none of these guys. And I'm watching them play, and I'm watching their personalities. And I'm like, that Jared Starling, that's the guy who should teach me to play volleyball. So You just admired the way he played. Yeah, and also his demeanor and mentality is like approach to the sport and his like enthusiasm. Yeah. I, I'm an emotional player yeah. in sports. And so he you was like it. fired up. Yeah. I, I I just thought, man, that guy should be a great partner for me. So I, I enroll in law school. I go up to the bookstore on campus to get my books. I'd never talked to the guy. And I see him at the bookstore. So I walk up to him. I said, Jared Starling, right? He's all... Yeah. I said, yeah, you're going to teach me to play volleyball. Like, I just think you're good at it and you're going to want to teach me. <laughs> and, and he, he laughed and thought that was funny. He's and, loving it. And then he did. And that was it. <laughs> yeah. And you guys just peanut butter and jelly since yeah. like both playing volleyball. And then like the volleyball like thing a- was great. We coached volleyball together. Uh, we played tournaments all over. We played, uh, you know, great teams, uh, teams that, that, uh, were very highly regarded, um, beat them right. We beat some yeah. very, very good teams. Yeah. Um, we we volleyball is a sport that unless you're in the top five in the country, not really you're not going to make any money. But yeah. if if you're in the top uh, hundred, you can pay for your your travel, right? So you it was like <laughs> so that's where you we were actually like professional volleyball. You were like making money, like y- yeah, you're not, you're not not very much. <laughs> I mean, I used to. In fact, I had a conversation with with um, some buddies who went down to California and and made it their full time job, and they're yeah. like. Why don't you, why don't you do this? You're good enough. You should do this. And I'm like, guys, I can't take the pay cut. I'm practicing law over here. I can't take the pay cut to be a beach volleyball player. Oh, it's incredible. Um, But, but we did, we developed a lot of our business rapport on the volleyball court. Uh, We coached at Judge Memorial High School. uh, Because I was going to say like that, I think about like some of the relationships that are, you have the highest level of trust. For me, it's like really intimate business relationships that are similar to sport. You're yeah. playing a game and sport. Like when you're like in the arena, yep. you just learn a lot about people. Who's you, with you, you who's do. not, how they respond to pressure, how they respond to adversity. So you guys had to have and, like had a lot of reps at that. How do you communicate to yeah. you? Like the honesty of communication between good teammates is 100%. really high. And honestly, the honesty of communication between coworkers is not. It's yeah, not very it's high. It's dysfunctional a lot yeah. of the time. It's so, so he and I had a very honest communication pattern between us and obviously long like, before yeah, it became a business Yeah, but you got to have high trust to be able to be like bold and be able to, right. because you're not worried about offending or getting offended. You're, right. you're worried about results, you know. And, and, and you could also focus on like, I knew what Jared's weaknesses were. Yeah. And he knew what my weaknesses were. And, and so without judgment, you can focus on covering your teammates' weakness. It was really easy when you're coming from a volleyball world where he's a great ground defender and you I'm a great to. blocker. Yeah, like that, that's right? so natural. It's like you just, that's what you do to win. So like, then in, in that business environment, 
where I'm the communicator and he's not. Yeah. There's no judgment associated with yeah. me being the communicator. Like on either direction, I'm not saying, well, I should, I should be the main guy because it's his, it's, uh, it's his ideas, but he can't communicate them yeah. without me. And he's not sitting there going, well, you know, uh, he doesn't have the ideas. He just is a communicator. No, both of us are like, here's what we do. Yeah. You know, we talk, I make sure we're on the same page. I take that page and I give it to everybody. And, and that worked for us. That's right? so cool. So it was very cool. And, and we did, we played some great volleyball. We, we were the, uh, the first team, not from the South Bay, uh, there in the LA area. To, I was gonna to say, win, yeah, I was uh, gonna say like that Manhattan six man. Yeah, like we 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 did very well, and we had a lot of fun doing. Uh, it. How many years? Um, I really the wheels kind of came off in 2017. I'd say 16, 17 years. So it was, it was like a real run. Yeah. We would get up in the morning, like when I was practicing law. We would get up in the morning at five in the summertime, meet train for two hours. And then I go off to the, Dude, what to, a gift to the from office. God that you got like 16 years of playing a game. Isn't it? You know what I mean? I'm like, how, so who awesome. gets to do that? Like yeah. you think about pro athletes, you know what I mean? Like I, I think about some of the experiences in my life yeah, that are the most fun. And it's like sport, sports you know, like when so you great. like, it, like the, and the community in and around sports is so, so great. fun. Like I was, I was aware of the value of community. So I was actively building the Utah volleyball community. And and that that's part of your legacy is like Utah volleyball is way better because of you and Jared. Like you guys have put in so. like real yeah. time, money, and energy well, into and, building and, and, and Utah volleyball. And it pays volleyball. back around, right? Yeah. Like I, I have um, two daughters who both play volleyball. One's 14 and one's nine. Yeah. The way I choose their coaches is I look through to see which of my buddies has a daughter that age and are they coaching? Wow. Right. And, and, and they get great coaching from my yeah. friends. But right? you know, you know yeah. who's good, who's not. I'm not chasing this club or that club. I don't care about the club. I care about the, 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 the coach. coach and does he match up with, does this coach match this daughter? Yeah. Right. And, and like my, my one daughter, she's a little tempestuous. She's a little hard to work with at times. Um, and so we've, we've gone through a number of different close personal friends to find, to find the right, the right mix fit. for her yeah. and, and we found it and it's, it's one of my it's buddies. It's really great. Yeah. But it's just, man, that's such a great thing to then pass that on to that next generation yeah. or to see, um, my buddies, kids playing college. I go to all the BYU games of course. And, I, and I'm looking at girls that I'm like, wait a second. Do I know? Let's look at the program. Oh, I know her. I've known her since she was three. Because that world so gets cool. small. Yeah. That world small. gets small. Yeah. Especially people who are good. Yeah. It gets so that's tight. been great. And and like both current coaches at BYU um, and their staff. Kind of dear friends, right? Yeah. We know yeah. them all. The, Family. We we're tight with them. Yeah. And, but Utah State's head coach. I think Rob's great. I love that guy. Yeah. I played on teams with him. I played against I mean, my him. My wife was a college volleyball player. She I played think, at UV, right? Yep, and I think yeah. about that experience and her love for Sam, her coach. Sam Ato is a great and, guy. And I'm, I'm like, that That was just a like a really special time in her life. You know what yeah. I mean? Like that, that was a really important time. Yeah. I, I love it. I love seeing all of, I, I think every, every major college in Utah's head coach is a personal friend. Yeah. It's incredible. Like Weber state, Utah state, Utah, BYU, like UVU. They're all friends. Yeah. I love that. We, we honestly could go on all day. We need to do round two, but I do have like one last piece that I want to dig okay. into. That's just always fascinating to me when I see people that when I look 
at the outside. And again, we've known each other for a couple of years. And so I, you know, don't know you as well as I know some of my friends, but from the outside looking in, you guys have a great marriage. You got a real cool culture with your family. Professionally, you've done as well as someone can do. As an investor, you're you're a world class, and we didn't even get into the investing side, but you have like this really interesting thesis that I love, um, and so I'd love to get into that at some point. Talk to me about faith. Talk to me about how faith fits in all of that and how it drives decisions and how it, you know, impacts, how it's impacted you. Yeah. And when you say faith, are you, are you meaning, you know, formal religious faith or just actually the act of belief? I think both. I think yeah. like that there's part of it that's like, you know, a more formal philosophy. And then there's a second one that's just like a belief, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and yeah, well, just, more, I'm always, I know what it where it plays a factor in my life. And I'm, I, I love figuring out how people think about that. Yeah. Oh, well, and I, I think that things that are true, things that are real principles are consistent. They work everywhere. Right. Yeah. So that's why I wanted to kind of separate that question. Yeah. Because to, to me, anytime you decide that you're going to learn something and then do it, that's an act of faith. Yeah. Right. You've said to yourself, I have the ability to learn it, and then I have the ability to do it. So all of my business success is is predicated on a, a real deep faith that I have, a belief. Yeah, belief in have. yourself, yeah. belief in a po- you know positive outcome. Yeah, that if I put and in the work, if I plant the seed, the the that tree right. will come up, and, and it results in a real optimism. Yeah, regardless of what part of my life you're you're in, and and as a result, it it, it permeates everything. Like in sports, if, if you asked around uh, the the volleyball community they would tell you that that I always feel like I'm about to win yeah um, because I do you have this I, I'm always pretty certain this yeah. is about to go my direction any minute now yeah you know yes we're down it's game point and we're down by eight but I've had this happen before and I come back and I win yeah. and so I, I'm certain it's going to happen this time too and it doesn't make me depressed when it doesn't work um, and and that that results in me being willing to play long games in business where I'm like you know Things will always work out. I'll just yep. buy more time and it'll work out eventually. Yep. All arrows go up and to the right, you know. Yep. Um, but but also I, I would say that that grew out of that that belief that permeates all of that part of my life grew out of a, a, a very strong um, uh, religious conviction, a very strong faith based religion. Um, and, and so is that it, mom and dad, is that your brothers? Is that your community back East? The so, combination of all of it? Like where, where does that, I don't know where that originates. I, I think that, I think that the, um, the LDS faith um, is one that does encourage individual seeking and it challenges its members, uh, to, to, to believe and then act, yeah. um, much more than many other faiths do. And, and so, you know, oh, so you believe in this thing. Okay, give us 10% of your money. Oh, you believe in this thing. We'll take two years and go tell people about it. Yeah. You believe in this thing is sacrifice. Yeah. Right? So, so belief plus action is, is a very good definition of it's faith. It's required things for right? you. Yeah. And, and that is a, that's a religion that, that fosters that. Yeah. And it fosters it for the betterment of your soul. And then incidentally, it also makes you better at other stuff. Yeah. Right. So I, I think that's a part of it. I, I served a, a mission um, and 
you hear people say, oh, it's best two years of my life. It was not. And you ask any of the missionaries I serve with, they'll tell you, oh yeah, Adams will tell you that's not the best two years of his life. I didn't like it at all. I, I found it to be uh, contrived and overly structured and not focused on the right goal. And, and it, it pushed me up against people I didn't want to interact with. And it was fantastic for me. For you as a human. Yeah. Yeah. It was awful. I you didn't it. love it. I mean, I, 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 could, I could say that same thing. I remember like there was points in my mission that to this day were some of the hardest experiences I've ever had yeah. in my life. You know, living with people for six months that I'm like, I would have lived with this person for a day if I didn't make a commitment that I was like hell bent on fulfilling, but I'm a way better human because of it. You know what I mean? Even like when I was selecting, you know, when I'm choosing, you know, who to go spend my life with, I had like this PTSD of like, don't marry somebody who's bipolar. Like, because you've (laughs) lived with that and that was so hard. Yeah. Be really deliberate, you know, cause that was so hard. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and a lot of things, a lot of those learnings there have been impossibly valuable. Yeah. But, but yeah, I, I would, I, and I, and I strongly recommend serving a mission. Like I want all three of my kids to go, but at the same time, I, I, I wouldn't take a phone call from one of my mission presidents. Yeah. Uh, there's another one I'd lay down in traffic for. Yeah. Right. But, but, but one, I wouldn't, man, if he was, I'd have, I'd be hard pressed if he was bleeding on the side of the road to help him up. Hard feelings. It, it would be very hard for me to do. Um, I, I also, I, I had one of the huge blessings of my life. I had a, a, a kid I was raised with first in Vegas, then in New Jersey. Uh, and our families were very close and he incidentally got called to the same mission as me. And about halfway through my mission, when I was done, I'm like, this is so stupid. This is just not where I need to be. He felt inspired to go to the mission president and explain why the novel activity of taking two guys who grew up together and making them companions was the right choice. Wow. Yeah. And, and changed your mission. He made the argument and he made the argument to a mission president who was willing to be inspired to do something unusual. And he took, took action on that. Um, and in fact, uh, Jeremy Andrews, this is Jeremy Andrews's grandfather. Come on. <laughs> and so yeah, he took action on that. Wow. And, and so transfers happen. And here's my longtime buddy who grew up in this tiny ward of 60 people with me who I, I played soccer with in Vegas as a little kid. And he's my new companion. And, and the first thing he says to me is, okay, you got to get your head right. Cause I can tell, did you buy a ticket already? Or are you just planning to buy one when you get to the airport? Come on, to go so home? he could just speak he's straight like, I can to see you. where you yeah. are. Yeah, how do we change this? Yeah. And I'm like, man, I don't know. He's like, all right, well, we'll start tomorrow changing it. And, and it kept me around. It kept wow. me working, got me going to the right place mentally, emotionally, and, and also taught me, you know, how important it is that people around you. I mean, I think about like coincidences in my life, stuff that I didn't control and how impactful it is on the course of my life. And that's the one where I'm like, oh my gosh, like that's that luck that, that, well, it's luck and it's God. Like, (laughs) it's like, there is something bigger at play here because you take that experience. You didn't have anything to do with that. Oh, that's right. And it, and, and what I put in didn't give me out the outcome that I, that I got. Yeah. I didn't deserve the outcome I got. Wow. Right. What I put in was not that, but it that's was like grace. Yeah. That's, that's grace. like, Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Right. So, so it's uh, the, 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 the faith is a core part of what I am. I think that it permeates all the stuff that I do. 
Um, I, I'm probably not your, your typical LDS person in a number of different ways, but, but it's a big enough tent that dudes like me fit. Um, That's so and, cool. and I like that. And, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's crucial to our family and how we, how we build our family, how we structure it, how we think about it. Yo. Uh, that family culture you mentioned is very much driven by it as well. Yo, brother, this is a pleasure for me. Um, you're a force of nature. <laughs> There's like some of those in the world and you're just one of them. You just like, when you decide something is going to happen, it happens. And I just admire <laughs> that to. about you. I, I admire like the, the will to just go, you know what I mean? And go yeah. make things happen. And so anyway, um, appreciate you coming on and, you know, look forward to doing it again. Yeah, let's do it. Let's yeah, do it. Thank Thanks. you.